here at chapter nine. Uh, discussion question, why would you ever give up something you deserved? And what are some examples? Because someone was more deserving. Someone was more deserving, okay. Yeah. Like uh, promotion or something? It's like, well, you know, thank you for the, the yeah. honor, but this person over here. Like with the well, I don't know if I go with that. Well, that's not that far, okay. I was thinking oh, like yeah. the new coat you got for Christmas because your other one was still good, but you knew some, a friend who needed one. Mm -hmm. or Sure. Promotion could go the same way. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was in this. I'm in this um, Sons of the American Revolution in a, this uh, Alexandria, Virginia chapter. It's like the, the largest one in the country. Uh -huh. Well, uh, when I first got in, you know, they get these. I, I was well. I, I was retired from the Marines. I was over at the Labor Department. But in that organization, I was actually a younger guy. I was even uh -huh. <laughs> as soon as you walk in the door, huh? yeah, there, there's some officer material, and they immediately put you in an office, which means you do all the work. Yep. So you got about seven people do all the work for this 250-person chapter. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the way you move up to president is you, you start out as secretary, and you move up through these offices. And lo and behold, eventually you're vice president, and the next year you're going to be president for one or two years. Yeah. Well, there was this fella uh, behind me. He started out as secretary. Well, the guy, the guy was in his 80s, you know. He was an old guy, Army colonel, mm -hmm. retired, good guy, Vietnam veteran, just real interesting to talk to. Well, he came in, and uh, he really made some great contributions to the chapter on the finances and you know, mm -hmm. administration, mm -hmm. things that people don't like to do. And and I, and uh, so it's my turn to be president, and this guy's like two two back. <laughs> so I, I, you know, we call together our little meeting, uh, little board of directors mm -hmm. meeting. I says, yeah. hey, you know, but we need to make Bob the president, and here's why. Yeah. He's old. How long is he gonna last? <laughs> uh, and he's president material. We know he. Yeah. Can, uh, and why don't we put he's him capable. ahead? Why don't we put him ahead of me? And so, sure, yeah. so Carr, so he put Carr in there, and then the guy, then he asked, then he, they, then they give him a second year, so I had to wait for two yeah. years. <laughs> you know what? He did a great job. Good. Yeah. To this day, I look at that, and, and yeah, he didn't live much longer after that. Well, he lived, you know, maybe four years. Absolutely. Something like yeah. that. But you know, we got him kind of when he still had something in him, and he yes. wasn't sick, mm -hmm. wasn't too sick, because he had, you know, he'd been in the mm -hmm. army, so he was a chain smoker, and you know, the guy yeah. had. COPD and eventually had to walk around with a little oxygen tank, mm -hmm. but he but he was good yeah. during these two years. So there's so, a good example. So so even there, right? Yeah. You deserve by the letter of the law, so to speak, yeah. or the expectation, you deserved that position. But taking an opportunity to be like, okay, I'm going to let someone else serve there for yeah. for their sake. Oftentimes well, you give well, up. But I knew I was going to get it eventually. Well, eventually yeah, there you go. <laughs> so there, there is that one caveat. <laughs> yeah. So oftentimes you give up something you deserve because you want to allow opportunity for others. Right? Yes. That maybe, I don't want to say undeserved, you could say it like that, but just maybe not get that chance. Yeah. Yep. Well, not, I mean, but not, not to make too much out of it, but this was one of the, this, you know, this is a guy who regretted mm -hmm. he didn't get in this stuff earlier. Yeah. And it was one of the greatest, I could tell it was one of the greatest things in his life. Great. Awesome. So, yeah, so I felt pretty good about it. <laughs> it's <actually a> good. <laughs> All right. That sometimes goes with the territory, though, right? Yeah. Especially if you give up something that you deserve to see somebody else flourish. Mm -hmm. It's often a good thing, right? To give up something you deserve, for, it's oftentimes for the sake of somebody else. And I say that because as we start today, we're going to review a little bit of Chapter 8. We're going to reach way back into those memory banks, right, of Chapter 8. Uh. <laughs> uh. 
Uh, regressing, this, huh? Yeah, well, this is because it carries you through. Oftentimes, when you read a lot of these chapters of Corinthians um, separate, they don't make a lick of sense. And you'll read, you'd read chapter 9 completely wrong if you don't have in mind the context of what he just said in chapter 8. And realize these letters were often read out loud, and they were written um, in one go. So, like, the sermon today would be us reading the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. That's what uh, it was like at that time. Which you're like, wow, that's a long time. Well, they didn't have a lot of other things to do. But also, it was a very young church, very hungry for not just biblical knowledge, but also what to do, where do we go from here, how do we take that next step in our faith. So they'd hear this entire letter in one go, and they'd probably pontificate on it all day. Maybe then start to break up sections and teach in separate sections. That's kind of how these chapters developed, is they would break them up so they could teach them in parts. Like, the, the whole letter was in mind, because I'm writing to you this whole letter. Now let's focus on this section today, and what can we do about what Paul said. Great. Next week, we're going to read the whole letter again. Now we're going to focus on this section, and what can we do about this section this one time the entire day. So you've got to remember chapter 8 as we go through. What was it about chapter 8? Let me give you a... This is my, this is my Reader's Digest version. Um, so it was about rights. Oh yeah. So it was about rights, not allowing, uh, not taking advantage of your own rights and causing another brother to stumble. We talked a little bit about a traffic light, red, green, and yellow. Yellow is what we call adiaphora. Those things neither commanded nor forbidden. Paul's saying, hey, you have a right to do these things, as you've said yourself, but what will it do for the sake of your brother? Remember when you're going into a yellow light, there's often someone right behind you. Is you running it going to cause them to run a red? Or are you going to progress through cautiously? How are you going to operate that way? So we talked a lot about the implementation of your Christian right. Or are you stopping suddenly? And <laughs> well, the same thing. And same thing, though, right? And, the pro and you can take that problem, take the metaphor, and operate that way. When you stop so suddenly, when things were going so well, and the, someone's right behind you, what are you going to say? What's wrong? Why, why, you, why is this wrong all of a sudden? Why can't we go? You know, they, all these questions come up, and sometimes an accident, right? As Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is expected. So we're expected to give up our rights for the sake of the weaker brother. That's kind of what that theme was that he was talking about in chapter 8. Questions? Additions? So as we go through this, let's start with uh, just verses 1 through 3. If someone could read 1 through 3 for me, I'd appreciate it. On chapter eight? 9. Oh, chapter 9. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship mm -hmm. in the Lord. Very this, nice. This, do you want to? No, no, that, that's good right there. Okay. What? What first? What uh, translation was that? This is the NIV. 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 I like that. That way it was phrased right there for a particular reason. Oh, yeah, do number verse 3, sorry. I this is in defense to those who sit in judgment of me. In defense of those who sit in judgment of me. So you hear that last part. Paul's being what? Persecuted. Judged by people. Why is he being judged? You hear this a lot. Have I not seen our Jesus our Lord? Paul mentioned this all the time throughout many letters and the book of Acts. Why does he say this all the time? Consider it for a moment. Yes, and mainly because what? He's not one of the original, right? right? He's, not, he's not Cephas, who he calls Peter, right? He's not Peter, he's not John, he's not James, he's not any of these guys. How can you be an apostle, right? We got, 
He's the only one that's seen Jesus after the ascension. It, well, that's exactly why, right? That's why he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? If we talk about it today, when people call themselves apostles, I'm like, okay, uh, why are you an apostle? <laughs> would be my question. Well, I'm the king of Candy King Well, I know. Well, you can give yourself whatever name. What's the <laughs> qualification for being an apostle? Paul's telling you right here. I've seen Jesus. Mm-hmm. I've seen our resurrected Lord in the flesh. Like, that's it. That's your number one qualification. And there, I don't know, I can make up other ones, but that's the main thing. That's why we don't say, you know, apostles anymore. Sure, we've seen Jesus in many different ways now today, right? Not necessarily the resurrected Lord in the flesh that I could touch, but we've seen him in many other ways, the way he acts through his church, the way he mm-hmm. inspires us through the Holy Spirit, you know, all these different touch points, sure. But he's saying, hey, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? I've been here. Um, I have one more note. Let me feel what that is. Oh, are you not my workmanship? Right? So he said that before. Why does he have to say, not only am I apostle, but if to others I am an apostle, at least I am to you, if you for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So to say, uh, there's one more phrase I'm missing here. Sorry. Oh, are you not my workmanship? Let's take that first. Are you not a result of my work, or are you not my workmanship? Right. First off, as an apostle, you're the church of Corinth. I've, I've planted you. Are you not enough proof of my apostleship, first off? And in the early church, like we have church planners now, sure. Like You go to a program. It could be just a, a pastor. It could be any denomination, that kind of thing. We're talking about 34 A.D. There's not like a church planting program that's going on throughout everything. It's all these apostles, right? The, the 12 from Jesus. Well, not anywhere near 12 anymore. Probably more like 6 or 8. A lot of them have been uh, killed, whether martyred or they're, um, I don't want to say stuck in Jerusalem, but they're starting churches in Jerusalem. But Paul's the addition, right? Mm-hmm. Since the book of Acts, we're adding another one. So over here, are you not a result of my works? For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. That's a really cool verse. So this idea of seal of my apostleship, back in, I say back in those days, we still say it today, a seal was a mark of genuineness, right? If someone got Dylan's seal of approval, what does that mean? Dylan approves, right? <laughs> I would tell you, like, if they it wanted to put... The zoo is looking for me. <laughs> That's one of the seals. There we go. The walrus of approval. Uh, you know, if I, I go to, if they wanted to at Amazing Glaze, they could put a, a Chris Simmons seal of approval on every box because uh, I, I approve of those donuts. <laughs> those are good. I say that they are good. Right. Um, are you not a seal of my apostleship? <laughs> Meaning you are a church, not, not only that's been planted, but in those days a seal, if you had like a, a will, for example, like a will or an endowment right, you, that, you were, that you were giving, you had to have seven seals upon it, seven people saying that this is a genuine product. Right, that this is this guy's genuine will. Seven seals. It's not necessarily talking about it being like locked up, right? So you have my seal of approval there. Another one would be, um, it's the idea that it's also genuine. I had another example from those days in particular. Let me see. Mm, oh, like on a container, a shipping container, right? When a seal is put over it, like a physical seal, it's often written on it. This was the last thing done to this container, and then it was sealed. Right? So you get both images there. And what Paul's saying is, you have, as a church, not only sealed my approval saying, I'm a genuine apostle because I planted a church. 
Also, the last thing that was done to you is that you were created as a church by an apostle, and now you're still being corrected. I'm still writing on that ticket. right? You are sealed by apostleship. Because as he goes forward, the reason why we're building this up so much is not only will Paul's apostleship slightly be called into question, he's going to talk about all his rights that he has as an apostle and why he's declining these rights that all the other apostles take advantage of. Take advantage of sounds like a bad thing, but more so benefit from. And they're all things that are scripturally great and commanded, as well as you can see like socially and culturally are expected almost. So that's why this first part, it may seem so kind of minor. It's a big deal. You yourselves are the proof that I'm an apostle. Because he'll say, therefore, and remember everything in chapter 8, right? Exercising your rights, um, but don't exercise your rights if you could cause another brother to stumble. Because that's what he's going to get into right now. Let's see, do I have anything else on here? I want to tell you about, you have to consider in mind, I don't want to jump the gun here. I think I'll talk about it, even though I'll probably talk about it later. It's all these privileges. Let's read uh, verses 4 through 7. Someone could do 4 through 7 for me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Mm-hmm. As do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Great, thank you very much. So I'll mention this a lot more in verse 14. Oh, see, this is where I... I should have talked about this earlier, but we'll talk about it in verse 14. Talking more about the culture that Paul's a part of right now. When you keep everything in mind about this letter as you read it, it starts. you start to understand it so much better. Remember what Corinth was like then. A bunch of philosophers and sophists, second only to Athens, and the amount of people that were coming there and to speak and be philosophers, things like that. They saw uh, work of your hands as a very demeaning thing. We'll talk about that. Aristotle has a really great quote on there. But Paul's talking about all these different rights that he has, right? Uh, food and drink. So all these things are, biblically speaking, you could kind of derive them from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, also rabbinic traditions at the time. I have a couple of them listed for you here. Because you think, what's, what do you mean a right to food and drink? There were five. So there are five main examples, right? One was the burnt offering, where this alone was burnt whole, except for the stomach, the entrails, and the sinew of the thigh. But the priest received the hides of the sacrifice, so then he could uh, uh, trade with them. So he could use them for, to barter for money and things like that. So the priest always got a part of the sacrifice as it commanded you know, early on, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all these different rabbinic practices. Number two, the sin offering. Only the fat was burned on the altar and the priest received all the flesh. And you think they're burning sheep, lambs, goats, um, even oxen. There's a lot of meat there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trespass offering. The fat alone was burned, and all the priests the priest received all the flesh. So again, he gets everything. The food offering, this consisted of flour and wine and oil. A token of it was offered on the altar, but the greater part was given to the priest. And the fifth one being the peace offering. The fat and entrails were burned on the altar, and the priest received the breast and the right shoulder, and the rest was given back to the worshiper. So he's talking about these benefits of food and drink. The other ones were... Uh, do I not have the right to eat and drink? Do I not have the right to take along a believing wife? As the other brothers do. Most of them were married. And we talked about this a couple chapters ago, that even Paul at one point we expected could have been married. 
whether she left him when he became a Christian or she died and he was left a widower. But often, the, the higher up you were within Jewish culture and tradition, the expectation, especially for Pharisees and for scribes and priests, is that you were already married. So oftentimes they were married. He's like, do I not have a right to be married? Right? Because Cephas and all these people, they would take their wives along with them mm-hmm. on all these different trips. So whether they were going to a church in Corinth or Galilee or Jerusalem or even going further off that way, going off to Ephesus, you know, every trip they had, they were expected to be supported not only for the missionary to get there or the apostle to get there, but also their wife and any family they might have there. Um, Bob, uh, oh, oh, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So that one over there, and we'll talk about this again a little bit later. That's why I say in verse 14. Um, oftentimes, every apostle that was going back and forth to all these churches, these pastors, were supported by the congregation, right? That's where you got your wage. If you wanted a full-time pastor, you were expected to pay a full-time salary for full-time work. We don't expect anything different today, right? You pay me, for example, to work here full-time so I could do things like teach Bible class, so I could do chapel like I did this past Wednesday, so I could do teacher devotions on Thursday, so we could prep for Lent and Advent services, so we could prep for Easter and Christmas, so we do all these things that kind of lead up to Sunday in worship. You, the congregation gives and pays these people to, to help with worship. And that's a good expectation. But Paul's saying Barnabas and he would uh, still work, have a trade. You hear about this term like worker priest and things like that. So they would, you know, Paul's a tent maker. Barnabas had some sort of trade. And as they would go to places like Corinth, for a very particular reason, which we'll unpack in a little bit, but a very particular reason they kind of refused to take um, a full-time salary from the Church of Corinth so that, you know, again, we'll unpack it a little bit. Was it so they could keep working on tents and give all the money to the church? Sure, that could have been one of the reasons. One of the reasons most likely is, well, if you pay my salary, you expect me to do the things that you want me to do. And we know Corinth is not a very friendly place, mm-hmm. as we've discussed before, right? You, you think of the, the shadiest parts of a shady city. Corinth had a lot of that going on. So you kind of think almost like a mob or mafia mentality, right? If I, if I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Paul's like, you didn't scratch my back. So what I do, I do as, as compulsion from Jesus. What I do and I give to you, I give to you free because you didn't have to sell me on this. And he does that here at this church for a very particular reason. Um, these things are well-deserved, both socially speaking and biblically speaking as well. You can kind of see that in the examples that he gives, right? Um, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? A soldier's often paid, right? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of his fruit? If you, I came back from California two weeks ago. A buddy of mine's a senior winemaker at a vineyard out there. You drink wine all the time because you have to. You want to taste it and see how it's going, but you also bring bottles home and things like that. You often get to eat a lot of the fruit of your own vine. Same thing. Oh, who tends to the flock without getting some of the milk? That's very cool. Mm-hmm. So consider being a shepherd. Right? Shepherds are living out in the field, oftentimes with the sheep to protect them. Their sole means of sustenance was literally milk from the flock. Like, go to a nursing mother sheep and have a drink. Like, you ate the milk that was there, and that was your main source of calories. Is that kind of neat? So you're, it's that idea of a shepherd caring for a sheep, and at the same time, the sheep are also the sustenance for the one who's caring for them. So it's a cyclical thing. You kind of think of a pastor in the church, right? 
if I'm the one spiritually caring for you and protecting you at the same time, you know, the sustenance comes from the source of the protection. It's this neat little thing that's kind of built in. <coughs> Any questions on that or no? Because we're almost to the main part of this. This is all build up. Uh, 8 through 12. Can someone read 8 through 12 for me? Please. All right. Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it by oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this is for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Mm -hmm. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Great. So we're going to get into this a little bit. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. So he gives some biblical examples. We'll talk about those. Again, after verse 14. Verse 14 is kind of the point where things kind of go home with this. So preaching the gospel should reach support of preaching the gospel, right? We see over here. Uh, is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Uh, when he's looking at that and he's addressing that, he's not necessarily talking about farming. It's just another example. I forgot what I was going to say there, to be honest. Um, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So he didn't exercise any of these rights, him or Barnabas, right? Planning this new church. We didn't take your money. We didn't say you had to pay for my wife to come along. Um, I'm working, so you don't have to support me. I'm not taking any of the sacrifices of food. Uh, that was typical rabbinic tradition, but also even today. Like, I'm not taking any of your food. I'm not taking any of your drink. I'm not taking any of these things from you. Why not? He's Why all not in. Huh? He's all in. He's all in, right? It's <laughs> even more than that. There are some, like, unique modern-day examples with that. Right, so that uh, worker-priest mentality. We have a church, a sister church in Rigby called Crown of Life. They're not a church that was designed to have a full-time pastor. So they need someone who will work part-time and not need benefits. Right? It's like, oh, that's kind of a, a narrow window. But at the same point, you, you couldn't go there and expect a full-time salary and full-time benefits. It's not what the church is built for. They want a part-time mm -hmm. guy because it's kind of a part-time gig, which can happen, and that's absolutely fine. They can't afford to pay for a full-time pastor's salary, so you get someone who can kind of work with you. And you get that a lot in, like, older congregations. Mm -hmm. You'll, you know, we had one in Kimberly that was not too long ago. They had eight people. You, you get what's called pastors with a dual parish, meaning I serve at this one and I serve at this one. Oftentimes, this is my main call, main church, and all I do is go and preach here on Sundays. I don't do any of their leadership development. I don't talk with their elders. I don't talk about service. I don't do anything else but just deliver the word of God and do the sacraments, right, and do that every Sunday. Why? Well, you know, when there's 10 people and everyone there is almost 90, there's not a lot of gas left in the tank. We just want to hear the word of God faithfully until the, whatever the next step God has planned, not either for this ministry or this property or whatever we can give after this experience happens. You know, sometimes we will look at that. It's like, it's called a revitalization project. They're down to 10. We need to do something. Well, sometimes things need to die when things, in order for things to be reborn at the same time. Right? So there's always a cycle with some of these things. But there are unique situations where that's still a big thing today. Um, what's unique about the place where Paul is serving that makes these sacrifices so important? Here's the big thing. Okay. This is where it was all coming to. 
Consider where Paul is serving right now in Corinth. And we know Corinth is a place of, you know, vast wealth, mm -hmm. um, idol worship. Uh, again, uh, prostitution was a big thing with the Temple of Aphrodite, literally knocking on your door asking if you were there to, if, since you couldn't come up to the temple, do you mind if we come to your house so you can worship today? Uh, those things, there was temptation everywhere. So this church in Corinth is saying, hey, uh, maybe we're doing all right. We're, we're doing our best to fight off some of these things, and we've gone through a lot of the correction that they've had so far. But if you consider for a moment all the sophists, there was this idea, I want to get this quote right from Aristotle, um, that philosophers and sophists, again, these high, highfalutin thinkers, I think this could be my new definition for a sophist, right? A highfalutin thinker, um, they thought it was beneath their dignity to work with their hands. They were used to people in uh, being people in privileged positions and exploiting those opportunities uh, with no consideration for others. Aristotle said this, the cultured, there are, people are divided into two classes. The cultured, then the hewers of wood and drawers of water who existed solely to perform the menial task for others, to, to whom it was a mistake to raise and educate <coughs> those who are only there to serve us. Right. So there's your definition of what people are thinking of at that time. In Corinthians at this time, you saw Paul argue it a lot, 1 Corinthians 4 and later, right? You think that you are a mature Christian. And they have this idea that they're a mature Christian and that they're in this privileged position, right, to exercise their rights, like eating the meat offered to idols. That was just a chapter before. And their Christian freedoms give them a special permission which a lesser Christian couldn't participate in. I know that was a lot, a lot of words. So what do, if we digest that a little bit, right, the contention that was going on in the earlier chapters, you have two people. Abstinence is the only way to go because we need to keep our bodies pure for Christ. And then these people, you can give in to anything, including um, uh, prostitution and eating the meat offered to idols because none of it matters anyway because we're all free in Christ. And what's Paul saying to both groups? You're both wrong, right? Mm -hmm. You're focused too much on the physical practices and not enough on Jesus. Mm -hmm. So he's saying rather than exercising my rights on either side, I'm going to give up my rights on either side to show you how I focus on Christ. He's making himself an example for everybody. And if, if you've ever had kids, if you've ever taught classes, if you've ever had to train workers at a new job and you're the senior person there at the job and you've got to train them, don't you have to step up a little bit? Right? Like, okay, I have to show them what it means to uh, be good, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to take on this job, what it means to do this. Think about being in the military, right? Oftentimes, you, you never see a crack in your higher-ranking officials until maybe you're on that same level. But, you know, a private would never see, would never be able to see that side, so to speak. Why? Because you're putting on the primary example of how you should be and how you should act. Paul's doing the same here. Even though he could participate in all these things, he's an apostle. He's seen Jesus. You know, he could give in to more, so to speak, in Christian freedom, like a good Christian thing, than anybody else could. <clears throat> Yet he refuses to do so, including taking a salary, including taking food and drink, including, um, you know, taking a home or, or whatever you want to say. All these different rights he could exercise as he refuses to, to show you the primary example of what it means to be for Jesus. Does that make sense? I'm talking a lot. I'm not asking you guys many things. Sorry. <laughs> A lot of background on this one. But when you take, again, when you take it all together, you go, oh, that's what this is about. That's what 
would you think this means otherwise? When you read it. I think we have enough examples throughout the history of the Protestant church of <laughs> people's interpretation of what this means. Absolutely. And there's, gosh, will I talk about this later? I don't, I don't think I will talk about this. Foundations for legalism. There, there, Paul has two tones. There's two tones that which Paul's trying to talk about. He's talking about the extremes, right? And the ex extremism you're talking about, we have, um, he's saying pastors should be supported by their churches, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's over here. Let's say that's over here. That's a good thing. They feed into each other and it's very good. Pastors can go one of two ways. One, um, if you didn't notice how much meat was part of their diet, there were uh, priests and rabbis and people at that time that ate so much meat, they got sick because they got no other nutrition except for eating meat. You think the carnivore diet's like a cool fad? Awesome! Uh, people were dying of it, and because they were getting, uh, they were eating the fat and the sinew and, and all the good parts of the meat. All the it was thought of when you were a philosopher or a rabbi or a priest that you must have been a really good one if you were fat. Is that where fat preachers come from? <laughs> well, that's kind of the, it's kind of the concept, and we're talking like it's not just like a gentle thing. It's like guys couldn't. Leave their church. You think of the king that's in Judges, right? He's so big he can't leave. He's so big he's stabbed with a sword that the sword is absorbed into his fat and people can't, can't see the sword. Hey, do you know the story or no? Mm -hmm. I'm, oh, I'm butchering it for you. Sorry. You've got to read Judges. It's so great. Uh, but the Israelites were being oppressed by the Philistines and they had a king and an Israelite came in who was before him and takes a sword and this king is so big mm -hmm. and so overweight that when he stabs him, the sword sinks into his belly and covers it up. And... Um, Sounds like Jabba the Hutt. He, he does. It's so very much. And this happens to him while he's on the can. All right? So, and this is all in the Bible. <laughs> and, and then the Israelite sneaks away. And no, none of his servants go in to see him for, for almost a day because they think he's just doing his thing. And that wasn't unusual because they ate in such copious, gluttonous amounts. Mm -hmm. but, no, but when people would peek through to see him, they would just see him there sitting. But they couldn't see the sword because it enveloped it. Anyway, read Judges. It's wild. Mm -hmm. But, hey, that was a school moment. What was I talking about? <laughs> um, oh, they would, eat, they, they would indulge so much in the benefits of it, it would even get them sick. Yeah. Right? Right. And then he's on the other side saying, yet these are all the things that you should do. You should be able to support those who come and give you the gospel. Right? And Jesus will talk about that. He even quotes Jesus in this next part. Any questions on that besides the sword on the can thing? Great. This is the last part. And this is really cool, the two ways of incurring debt. I'll read this for you. <coughs> Let me see, 13. I'll try and read it for you if I can find it. Oh, wait. <coughs> Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offering? So we talked about that, right? The five different kinds already. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Then Paul continues, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? 
that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So again, you're getting this idea. As it continues down, like the resources to allow servants of the gospel to dedicate themselves to that work. Um, can someone turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 7, and Matthew 10, 10? Mike? That clock is not. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I've checked it twice, and I'm like, yeah. oh, good. I'm like, man, I still got half an hour. Yeah. Man, I still got half an hour. I don't. I'll do Matthew 10, 10. I, oh, I only looked at the minute hand twice. <laughs> is that a battery clock? Or? It needs a new battery. So. Must be, yeah. Oh, okay. This is my wife's classroom, so I better make sure like it's I mean, done. Yeah, it wired in up there. But yep. I have, Matthew, have? I have Matthew. You have Matthew. 10, Does someone 10. have Luke seven? Luke ten seven. I do. Deb, if you could take it. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Thank you. And then Matthew ten ten. Is take no bag for the journey, or extra tunic, or sandals, or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So again, you get this idea of support, right? He says it right here. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Again, full-time wage for full-time work. And this is an important job, right? Deb? In, in Luke 10, he's sending out the 72. He that's, is. That's the premise. Of it is. When mm -hmm. you pull one, one verse out, you've got to have Sure, yeah, I was just pulling the commands because they're related. But, yeah, absolutely. He sends out the 72, which yeah. is sending them out to? And that's what the preach the gospel. Yeah. Exactly. And it was depicted in The Chosen very well. Have and has anyone watched that? I haven't seen that episode. One? So we're okay. my wife and I are in season yeah. one. I've watched through oh, season yeah. two, but yeah. Oh. yeah. We're right on the current one. We're waiting for the next today. Cool. But, <laughs> but yeah, when he sends the apostles out and they're like, wait a minute, we can't defend ourselves, no food, no extra not even a change yeah. of clothes. Not any, anything to protect ourselves, and you get to really thinking about it more so than I would have just reading this. Mm -hmm. And um, it just resounds like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. you're out there, and you're dependent on everyone mm -hmm. based on your word, your wor of your relaying of the word. Yep. I commend, when I commend that show to people, I often say, if you look at it for theological scrutiny, you'll always be disappointed. It's yeah. meant to drive you to the word, not be the Bible for you. Right. 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 So that's always my first thing. Yeah. Like, you could, you, I could tear it apart all day. I have. There have been certain moments yeah. I'm like, mm, like, I wish that was really different. Yeah. What it, what it has done for me, which has been a benefit, is give me a visual to how things actually could have been. Yep. Right. What did it look like that's for a wedding in Cana? Oh. Plausible. Okay. Yeah. Now, what did it look like when he taught on the beach? Mm. Oh. That's a neat visual, mm -hmm. yep. but same thing there. To right. finally like, oh yeah, you hear the words like Deb just read, right? You hear the words, and you're like, oh okay, and then they were off to the next thing. Sometimes like you hear those words, then you get the depth and breadth of them when you realize people would struggle with that. Oh yeah, right. yeah. I forgot that's got to be tough. Yeah, yeah. That, the, very. Uh, tough. I think a lot of learning styles. And I may be partially included in this. Uh, uh, you know, these words are kind of dense to me. But when, when you see it reenacted and then yep. cross-reference the words. And then you say, then, wow. Yeah. Then you're Absolutely. Going, oh, okay. yep. yeah, that, that, that means a little bit more because uh, yeah, the Bible, I, I mean, you folks that go to seminary, you get a real in-depth view at it. But mm -hmm. average people, I mean, it's, it, it, it's really tough. Oh, you think it's in-depth. I mean, and it is to an extent. Yeah, it is. I, 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 still have, I still read my Bible every day. Why? And well, I still yeah. read it and go, yeah. oh, man. How have I never seen that? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Right. It's, it's moments. I was reading First yeah. Samuel the other day. I, I had to write down a quote because I'm like, I can't believe I never saw that. 
Right. Amazing. Well, it's like yep. all, that's like all college education. You just learn what you don't know. Right. Well, that's really. Yeah. I tell people <laughs> often, <laughs> oftentimes if you those are like you learn how to learn. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I now get an understanding right. of a better way to maybe read scripture or how to read the Bible or how to build theology. Right. Yeah. It doesn't just if you stop there, you never. That's true. You never put it into practice. It'll always mm -hmm. be that way. This is really neat. Two ways of incurring debt. I read this not in this book, but it was a. It's a neat one. I should have written the quote down. I'll find it for you if someone wants to find out where it's from. But it's a reputable source. But he talks about the two ways of incurring debt. Because Paul writes here, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I think the next verse is 17, right? Because that's part of it too. Uh, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a stewardship. Right? And we, we unpacked that word before. We'll unpack it again in a second. Two ways of incurring debt. The first is we borrow money from someone. The second is when someone entrusts us with money that he asks us to hand to someone else. Right? So those two ways of incurring debt. This is a pastor that wrote this. Until we actually hand it on, we stand indebted to the person for whom it is intended. Paul's debt was of the second kind. He had been handed and entrusted with the gospel and was obligated to reach others with it. If he failed to discharge that debt, then woe to him as he would face God's wrath. Isn't that kind of neat? To, again, Jesus says it. I, I, say, I refer to it all the time, to whom much is given, much is expected. Don't think of that as like a threat. It's, I tell people, focus on the first part. Realize you've been, you've been given a lot. Just knowledge of your salvation and the blessing that Christ is for you. That's a lot. And too much is given, much is expected. Yeah, I, I genuinely like to tell other people about that and share it. This Wednesday, we do themes for chapel, and it, the theme was uh, my faith story. So I told my faith story to uh, kindergarten and preschool, elementary, and then just one-on-one -on -one with the high school. So not the middle school this time around. But when I, when I talk about my faith story, oftentimes, I always start with, you know, you have expectations when you see a pastor. Right? Do you think that I like to talk about Jesus? Absolutely. Do you think I like to talk about Jesus all the time? Absolutely. Is it just Sundays? Well, Sundays, but not just Sundays. Just chapel? Just Christian studies? No. I do it in, you know, and it's, he's in my mind, in my heart, in every conversation. That's what you kind of expect out of a, a pastor. Yeah. Not, not that it has to fulfill an obligation that's not part of, like, the thing you write up. And you could be a Christian and not a pastor and have Jesus on your heart all the time and love to talk about him. In the same sense... I've been given so much, I don't just feel obligated. I want to tell people about Jesus. When I was a kid, you know, all the way up through, uh, gosh, 22 years old, I didn't have Jesus as part of my life at all. I felt the void of what emptiness was and made choices based off of my own moral failings and what I desired and wanted and saw people as objects and tools to achieve my own desires. And all of a sudden, when that vast void is, is filled... I want to tell other people, your vast void can be filled with Christ. Isn't it great? So too much is given, much is expected. Again, I feel this the same way. I've been given something that I need to pass along to others. I didn't just borrow money from Jesus. I feel indebted as in he's given me so much and says, hey, you got plenty to share. Right? I love, what is it, John 4? You too will become founts of living water. Right? That means you will continue to produce water. You're never going to run out of water. Don't be afraid of draining the tank dry. I will always fill it. The you are a fountain overflows. of water. And your cup overflows. Exactly. 
Yep. And what do you do with that? If your cup's overflowing, do you try and share it? You share it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't go, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and he closes with this. I'm out of time. Steward of the mysteries of God. First Corinthians chapter four, verses one through seven. He talked about stewardship. Remember, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. That term is so cool, right? To be a steward means to be the hands of the the master, right? You're considered the head of, you know. If you take slavery into an aspect of the people in the household and the servants, you are the head of all the servants, and thereby, like an ambassador, you're an extension of the power that the master's empowered you with. You have been empowered with the mysteries of God, given to you by God. How do you care for them and what do you do with them? That's what Paul says. Paul says, not only are you called to care for them, you're called to employ the will of the master, which is love others, and as I have loved you, you must love one another, you know. So that word steward is so cool. I, you know what I need to do is just a little bit of research. That idea of so the word elder. I have to look, I, gosh, I can't remember the name on top of my, the word on top of my head, but the the term elder that you get in Timothy, right? That we have for our church elders, right? A board of elders. Oftentimes, what that meant, that word in the Greek means particularly to be the hands of. So when Paul says, "I came and appointed you elders," I appointed you to be the hands of me. To be an extension of me in that place. And we, we lose perspective of that oftentimes with the board of elders. We think an elder, like when you're assigned at a board of elders at a church, it's a position of honor. You know, you're an elder. Why? Because you've donated X amount of money and you've been here 30 years. Well, then I'm an elder. When an elder is supposed to be the hands of the pastor, the one employing ministry and being active in not just the community, but being active. And, and you think not just the hands of the pastor, the elders are the hands of the congregation. Right? What is the will of the congregation? Think of it like the way our government should work, right? With like a house of representatives. You're there to represent your area. You're to vote not on your own personal um, mm -hmm. mindset, but on that of the people that you represent. Right. Yep. And as Paul's saying, I'm a, I'm a slave to the one I'm in debt to. And therefore, I'm a steward of him, my <clears throat> master, in this house. And I'm here to be his hands and to share what he's given me. Cool. And again, now we'll get into the second half of chapter 9. There'll be a little bit more discussion. Uh, but it all builds again. It kind of ramps up into this. Because now he's saying, now that I've denied my rights and who I am, what do I do now? So very cool. Again, remember how much this letter builds off of everything. It's like it was so odd almost taking that chapter 11 out of context. Because when we get back to it and we do the part, the first one's about like wearing headdresses in church. And you're like, that's weird. And then the next sentence is, all right, and now about communion. You go, I don't get it. But it's really cool how they interact. Anyway, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this word in which uh, you've had Paul write down and which is preached to us today. And Lord, it's still ever so relevant. So thank you. Uh, thank you for the indebtedness that we could feel at times. Because <coughs> you've given us so much, Lord, that um, we feel just so abundantly blessed. And once we realize that and what we have to share... We thank you for this idea of, of serving one another. So, Lord, in those times where we feel like the things that we deserve are uh, things that we should take by force, allow us to just have that mindset of how Christ took everything that he deserved and laid it aside and took on everything undeserved for our sake. Help us to be more like you, Jesus. Pray this all in your name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. 
This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.